thank you for being here. Uh, it is a joy to have Melissa back for a little while. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how to get her here. We actually were thinking about handcuffing her to the piano this morning. <laughs> I want you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we've had a lot of fun this morning worshiping you, and God being able to do that is a joy and a privilege. Thank you for gathering us in this room this morning, calling us to worship you. What a privilege. What a privilege. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've done for us, and we thank you this morning that we could celebrate your faithfulness. It's what my mind has been on this week. It's been on your faithfulness. All that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you promised to do. I'm trusting you this morning, Lord, to speak to us individually. We come as a group, but God, we need to speak. We need you to speak to where we are individually. Touch our heart, change our lives. May we be closer to you when we leave than when we came. In the name of Jesus, Amen. You know, as I pondered this question this week. It's a very important question. Do you really believe in the faithfulness of God? Do you believe that God is faithful? With that question came another question. Do you trust God to be faithful to you? Now, that's important that we address both of those questions because, you know, sometimes belief and trust are two different things. They're not supposed to be. But sometimes we make them into two different entities. You know, I, I, I can put up a rope swing in a tree and believe that it's strong enough for everybody to get on, but then refuse to get on it because I'm not sure it will hold me. <laughs> um, there are a lot of people that believe airplanes can fly, but they won't fly because they don't trust the airplane with their life. You understand what I'm saying? It can be a little bit different. So I want to spiritualize that thought for just a minute. You know, you, you can believe with your mind that Jesus can save a lost soul. But then you can refuse with your heart to trust him to save yours. Hang on to that. Because that's where a lot of people are. We come, we sing, we worship. We believe God can do some wonderful things, but then we don't let him do it for us. So can you trust the faithfulness of God? How would you even define faithfulness? I, I, I went back and looked up that word in the Greek, and it's the word pistos. And, and it means literally to be trusted, to be relied upon, to be reliable. I want you to look with me into 1 Corinthians at how Paul described the faithfulness of God. He writes in chapter 1, verse 4, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given to you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. 
This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift that you're going to need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free. I love that. Free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. He said God will do this. For he is faithful. He is reliable to do what he says. And don't miss this last part because we sometimes fail to see this. It says, and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A partnership. You know, sometimes we don't go into business with people because we don't trust them. You can trust God. You can trust him. Dr. Jim Perdue said the same God who called you into a, a relationship with him will always be faithful in that relationship. You will never discover a time that God isn't faithful. I want you to do something for me. Look at the person to your left. Now, <laughs> some of you got scared, didn't you? <laughs> look, look to your right. Aren't you glad God made us all different? <laughs> Aren't you glad you're not like the person next to you? <laughs> you know, while, while we are all different, and, and believe it or not, we do share some things that are in common. You say, Brother Randy, what in the world do we share that's in common? What could that be? Well, we all share uncertainties. Yeah. Uh, life is full of uncertain outcomes. Um, we never know how a surgery is going to turn out. Mary Ann and I were talking about that just a minute ago. Um, I'm supposed to have hand surgery in about a month, and I'm getting a little anxious already. She says, because you only got two hands, right? <laughs> yeah. You want them to be okay. But we never know how things are going to turn out. We don't know how medical tests are going to turn out. We take trips sometimes. We hope they're going to be fun and relaxing, but we never know how that trip is going to turn out. We, we invest in things, and we hope for a good return, but we never know for sure whether we're going to get that or not. And how about marriages? I mean, you never know how marriage is going to turn out. How about elections? We're going to have a presidential election this year. And while I know what I want to happen, I don't know if it will. Neither do you. None of us know what the future holds. None of us. Not a single one of us can accurately predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone 30 minutes from now. And you might have a crystal ball, but I bet you can't make it work. And you know, believe it or not, there's not a person on this planet that can read the stars and tell you what the future holds. Tim Dowdy said that none of us has enough power today to control every part of tomorrow. That's a powerful statement. So can I just say to you that it's okay for a believer, from, from a believer's standpoint, that, that I don't know everything that's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know all the details to the future. Uh, but my lack of knowledge about tomorrow doesn't mean that everything's out of control. You see, one of the amazing truths about being in fellowship with Jesus Christ 
is that we know that our future is in the hands of God. Amen? Amen. It has been said that we don't fear what we don't know because we have faith in the one who owns the past and owns the present and even owns the future. If you've studied your Bible, then you know that the future is not uncertain to God. Nothing that ever happens to you surprises God. Nothing. And that's because God not only knows the future, but he controls the future. We're going to look at the life of Jesus this morning, and you're going to see that his life on earth proves the faithfulness of God. His life also reveals the greatness and the faithfulness of God's compassion for us. Through his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, he has eternally secured a future in heaven for everybody that puts their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness and the salvation that we all desperately need. If you are truly saved, and I use those words, truly saved, as a believer, you may not know all the intimate details of the future that is in store for you, but you, you have an eternal destiny that's been made secure because of the faithfulness of God. And, and I, I could also say that if you are hopelessly lost, and I believe there's probably somebody in this room, maybe more than one, that is, and your future is uncertain, you don't know what's going to happen, I, I can say to you, rest assured, that God is going to be faithful to do everything he can to save your lost soul. That, that's what he's doing right now. That's why you're here. You say, but I got up and made the decision to go to church this morning. Well, who put it in your heart? See, I believe that prayers we pray are prayed there first. Hey, that's a deep subject. We could talk about that a long time. God is committed to redeeming lost souls, your lost souls. And he's going to do his part to make sure that everybody in this world has an opportunity to be saved. I love Philippians 1.6. It, it is a great passage of Scripture. It is one that has so much promise in it. I, I, I wish we all had it memorized. I, I want to share it with you from the New Living Translation. Paul wrote, And I am sure that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes back again. You know, what, the, what God has begun in this world, I can assure you, he will finish. He's not like me. My wife says, you know, you've got too many unfinished projects around the house. Yeah, we do. And sometimes we just need to buy a new tool to be able to finish it. <laughs> amen. I heard an amen. I got that. Christian, what God has begun in you, he will complete. He will complete. All of his promises are true, and our ultimate future is certain because of the eternal security that we have in Christ Jesus. I want you to listen to what Jesus promised you. He said, everyone who believes, and that is an interesting word, that, that's not just everyone who has head knowledge about me, but everybody who believes, everybody who trusts me with their heart, will have eternal life. And that's not life on a yo-yo. That's life that God gives and he leaves with you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him 
will not perish but have eternal life. Notice verse 17. God did not send his son into this world to condemn it but to save it. So what does that look like? What does that look like? This morning I want us to look at what it looks like. And I want us to see God's faithfulness in action. You're going to see God's faithfulness at work in the ministry and in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. So I want us to go back and look another time at the fourth chapter of Luke in Luke's gospel. And we're going to pick up where we were last week. We're going to pick up at verse 28. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. Luke writes this. He said, when they heard this, and, and they, if you want to know who they are, they are the people who were gathered there in the synagogue that day when Jesus read from Isaiah 61. They are the Jewish people that heard everything Jesus said and claimed. They, when they heard this, it says the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and took him to the edge of the hill on which the city was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. Do you understand what they were doing there? I mean, they grabbed him. They were ready to kill him. But he slipped away through the crowd and left them. You know, I, I've sat several times this week and tried to ponder what that must have been like. What happened there? Did, did they all get in slow-mo? You know, and Jesus just slipped right on by. I don't know, but I bet it was fun to, to watch. One day, when we get to heaven, we can plug that in and we can see it all. Amen. So where did Jesus go from there? Why did he leave? Well, verse 31 says Jesus went to Capernaum. To Capernaum. Now, we're not sure how long Jesus was in his hometown there in Nazareth. It would have been nice if he would have been able to stay there for a while and, and maybe set up home base there, hit the headquarters of his ministry, operate from that particular city. I mean, he had grown up there and he knew the community. He knew the people. Most likely his mother still lived there. We're not told for sure if Joseph was still alive. He kind of just disappears from Scripture, so we assume that he was dead by now. Uh, his siblings, yes, siblings, um, possibly still lived there. And I'm talking about his half-brothers and his half-sisters. They shared the same mother, but they had a different father, right? Joseph was not Jesus' father. God was. So it would have been nice if he could have stayed there, but it didn't work out. You have to remember that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. At first, when Jesus came back, they liked him, and they were glad to see him. He was a hometown boy that had come home. But all of that quickly changed. We have to remember that Jesus had been speaking to a Jewish crowd there in the synagogue, and he was reading from Jewish scripture, scripture, the laws and the prophets. And we have to remember that he owned that passage of scripture, claiming that he was the fulfillment of that passage. He said, the scripture that you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Well, knowing Jewish people and knowing these Jewish people, they heard everything that he said, but they had it in their own mind what Messiah was supposed to be, and Jesus did not fit their expectation. 
And, and besides that, with what he said about being the Messiah, inferring, his words offended them. Imagine that. True offending people. So instead of them turning to God as they should, and that was what that event was all about, they turned on Jesus like a pack of hungry wolves. And they became furious. They became physical. They became very vicious. And oh, how they wanted to kill him. And to kill him right then and right there, in that moment. That was what they wanted to do. And if, if they could have, they would have. But because of the faithfulness of God for taking his son and having a plan for his son, God would not allow that. They were not allowed. God made sure there was another way. God was certainly in control. You see, God still had work for his son to do. But there in Nazareth, with everything that Jesus tried to do, he only experienced resistance and rejection and rebellion. There was no repentance. None at all. There were no miracles performed in Nazareth, which is amazing. Not a single person turned to Jesus and was saved. Not one. I wonder how discouraging that was for Jesus. I've had people say to me, Pastor, how do you feel after preaching your heart out on Sunday morning and nobody comes? I learned a long time ago it's not about me. And if I've been faithful, the burden then lays with you, not me. Nobody likes rejection, though. And while Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% man. He put everything he had into what he did there in Nazareth, and not a single soul was saved. What would you have done if you had experienced that? Sometimes there is that temptation, there was for him, I'm sure, to quit and go home. The only problem was he couldn't go home. He was already home. <laughs> so what did Jesus do? He, well, he, he simply moved on. And that's, that's what the Lord still does today. When he, when he reaches out and touches your heart and he gives you an opportunity and you don't respond, you know what he does? He moves on. He makes good use of his time so Jesus left Nazareth and he set up his headquarters in Capernaum if Nazareth wasn't going to respond he'd go to the next place down the road if you know anything about Capernaum it was the home of Peter and Andrew and James and John I've actually been to Capernaum um, there is a Catholic church if I remember right uh, built right over the spot where they think Peter's house was but when we were there they were doing some excavation around that, and they were finding more remnants of what they thought was part of the structure where Peter had been. Capernaum is a, a small town in the, on the northern shore or northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles northeast of, of Nazareth. Um, it, it had enough Jewish families in the city for, for them to be able to have a synagogue. Uh, Ten families with male leadership were required in order for there to, to be a synagogue, and they had enough, and so they had a synagogue. 
Um, I was reading something from J. Vernon McGee the other day, and he said from this verse through the rest of this chapter, we have one day in the, uh, uh, with the Lord Jesus. In other words, one day in the life of Jesus. Just this, the rest of this chapter gives us one day snapshot of his life. And he says many of us would have loved to have spent a day with him when he was on earth. Can you imagine what that would have been like? To be able to walk along with Jesus. It was pretty amazing just to walk in places where I thought he actually stepped. I stood down in front of Caiaphas's house where Jesus would have stood when he was arrested and tried. Boy, that will raise the hair on the back of your neck. Dr. Luke gives us a glimpse of what that must have been like. I see as I read his words that the Lord's Day was kind of divided up into three different but continuous segments. In reality, it was just another busy day in the life of Jesus. He was busy doing the work of the Lord. When you look at verse 31, you find that Jesus first goes to a local synagogue to do some teaching. As you're about to see, Jesus never missed an opportunity to teach and preach. That was what he was all about, especially in Jewish synagogues. That was his strategy to reach his people. He always astonished the people with his ability to teach, but he astonished them even more with his authority over demons. Luke writes, Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and he taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day. There too, the people were amazed at the things he said because he spoke with authority. Once, when he was there in the synagogue, a man possessed with a demon began shouting at Jesus, Go away, why are you bothering us? I thought that rather interesting. He said, Why are you bothering us? So he wasn't alone, was he? Why are you bothering us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One sent from God. Why in the world was a demon-possessed man in a worship service in a Jewish synagogue? Was he a demonic spy? Was this a spiritual takeover? There was more than one there. You know, I don't know how to answer that question, but what I do know is that this man and possibly a member of the synagogue, possibly, I don't know, I'm speculating. What I do know is he was demonized. Demonized. That means he was under the internal control of a demonic spirit, at least one. When you read in scripture, you find that every case of demonization that Jesus dealt with involved the indwelling of demons who utterly controlled the bodies of their victims. So much so that demons spoke through their victims. Have you ever heard a, a demon speak through an individual? It's scary. They spoke through their victims. They caused mental derangement they they cause violent episodes they even cause seizure-like events and sometimes they left the person they inhabited speechless I honestly believe that some of our church encountered demons this week 
they know who and what I'm talking about. Demons are real. People are not demons, but demons possess people. They use people. If you go back in Scripture, you'll find that fallen angels become demons. About a third of the angelic host were followers of Satan, and they were cast out of heaven and cast to earth. There's a lot of them. They like to hound us and follow us and seize opportunity to disrupt our lives spiritually. There are things that demons can do. They can obsess you. They can oppress you. They can possess you. Now, I, I said that generically in the sense that they can do all three, obsess, possess, and oppress a non-believer. But they cannot possess a true believer. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Because we belong to God. He's already claimed us and He lives in us. And the Spirit of God and the Spirit of, of Satan cannot live in the same place. This man was clearly demon-possessed. So I want you to pay attention to what Jesus did to help this man. What did he do? We talked about it last week. Jesus delivered this man. He delivered him from demonic possession. Verse 35 says, the demon was speaking and Jesus cut him short. In other words, be silent. And he said, come out of the man. And the demon threw the man to the floor as, as the crowd watched. It, it amazes me. The crowd recognized the presence of a demon in this man. Somehow they saw that physical manifestation of him coming out of that man. It said, and then it left him without hurting him further. This demon was limited in what he could do to the man, and Jesus, Jesus stopped it. That demon had no choice but to obey the words of Jesus. Jesus had complete authority over Satan and over demons, even to this day, those demon cronies. Look at verse 36. It says, amazed, the people proclaim, what authority and power this man's words possess, even evil spirits obey him and they flee at his command. And it says in verse 37, the story of what he had done spread like wildfire throughout the whole region. Why? Because nobody else could do that. From teaching there in the synagogue, and uh, it, it says he, he, he moved from there and made his way to Simon's house where he does some more miracles, physical miracles. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, Simon Peter's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. They encouraged him. They begged him, please heal her. And standing beside her bed, he didn't, it didn't say he put his hands on her. He didn't touch her. He spoke to the fever, just like he spoke to the waves. And it said they became still. He spoke to the fever, rebuking it, and immediately her temperature returned to normal, and she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. When I was in the seventh grade, I was a typical teenage boy. And one day I had a test to take in one of my classes, and I wasn't prepared to take my test. So I faked a sore throat. 
And I told my teacher that, you know, my throat was hurting and I didn't feel good. She said, okay, go down to the nurse's station. Gave me a pass, went to the nurse's station. Walked in, the nurse asked me a couple of questions. She stuck a thermometer in my mouth and left the room. Her mistake was there was a sink right there. And I turned the hot water on and let it run for a minute. And then I took the thermometer out and I stuck it under the water and it immediately shattered. Guess what? Immediately, I felt better. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> I had to go back and take a test I wasn't prepared to take. I'm sure I failed it. Jesus immediately made this lady's sickness and fever disappear. It was gone. He didn't say, take two Tylenol and you'll feel better in three or four days. Gone. Then she got up and fixed breakfast. Yeah. Verse 40 says, as the sun went down, and that's important because the Sabbath would have ended at 6 p.m. in the afternoon. When that happened, people were then able to move around and make trips and travel. They were no longer restricted. It said people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus, and no matter what their disease, diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Some were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, You are the Son of God! But because they knew he was the Messiah, Jesus stopped them and told them to be silent. Again, Jesus silenced the departing demons because he didn't want the acknowledgement of demons. He wanted the praise of men. Jesus could teach like nobody else. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. He could cast out demons. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. There was nothing beyond his power. There was nothing he couldn't do. Greatest teacher that ever lived. Greatest healer that ever lived. But with all that he could do, I want you to understand this. Don't miss this next point. Jesus chose to focus on his greater work of preaching. Of preaching. Now, there, there are two things that Jesus' ministry is known for above all other things. The first is prayer. And the next is preaching. Notice verse 42. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. There are two clues in this verse that tell me exactly what Jesus was doing. The first is the word early. The second are the words isolated place. I know exactly what Jesus was doing. He got up early that morning to go out to his special isolated place to pray. Prayer was an everyday part of his life. How about you? We talked about that yesterday, didn't we, Dave? Yeah. Having a habit of, of, of going to the Lord early in the morning. His life was like a spiritual pendulum. 
like on a clock. He would swing over and he would spend time with his father in prayer and in fellowship and in communion. And he would get his spiritual batteries re-energized. And then he would go out into the public and he would expend all of that spiritual energy doing ministry for the Lord. And when he was almost empty, he would swing back to the Father and he would spend more time in prayer. Why? So he would have more energy to do the work of the Lord. We are no different. If you don't spend time with the Lord, you're going to run out of energy. Jesus stayed prayed up so he could preach out. Dr. Luke goes on to tell us that the crowd searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other places too because that is why I was sent. And it says he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. That was his strategy. He was trying to reach his people. In John chapter 5, there's an interesting story where Jesus encountered a crippled man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. And it said, Jesus healed that man. Can you imagine how that, that town must have talked about that experience? Can you imagine what that man who now could walk, who had not been able to walk in so long, can you imagine what he was saying and how he was excited about the Lord? He, he would have said, man, I, the greatest miracle that's ever been performed was just performed on me. I got news for you. There are greater miracles than healing somebody who's paralyzed. Jesus tells us, you and me, that we will do greater works than he did. Jesus was sent to preach the good news. What is the good news? He saves souls. He saves souls. The hospitals are full of people who want miracles. The, the funeral homes are full of people that want to live again. But Jesus said, I came to save you. Not only that, but we, remember we said God gave us the ability to partner with his son? Friends, God calls each of us to preach the good news through the personal witness that we have of how Jesus has saved our soul. John 14, 12. Mark this in your Bible. You need to understand what Jesus said about this. He said, the truth is, anyone who believes in me will still do the same work that I have done and even greater work because I'm going to be with the Father. Jesus didn't mean greater work. In power, you're never going to have more power than he did, but he meant greater work in extent or scope or expansion. In other words, our greater work is to be a witness to all the world through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit so that a great harvest of lost souls can be saved. The, the, the saving of, lost, of a lost soul is the greatest miracle you're ever going to witness. Tony Evans said this. One of the things that a strong church must do is disciple its members to be a strong witness. 
Don't miss that. Do you want to be a strong church? Do you? I do. One of the things that a strong church must do is disciple its members to be a strong witness. When we have, when we have uh, announcements later on today, you're going you're gonna to hear an announcement from Dennis Jones. Dennis and Cheryl are prayerfully making an attempt to go back to the mission field. It's their heart. When God puts a call on your life, you can't do anything else and be, be fulfilled, be happy. When you're not doing what God called you to do, you're miserable. But he and Cheryl uh, are, are going to give you an opportunity to do some personal discipleship with them for about six months. These opportunities don't come every day. You want to grow in the Lord? Partner with them. They'll take you to a place you've never been before. Your life will never be the same. Discipleship is not complete until the discipled becomes the discipler. Right, Cheryl? Amen. Right, Dennis? Yeah. We all need to be like the believers who prayed in Acts chapter 4. This, this passage just kind of jumped off the page to me this week. You know, we always think that, that the only people who preach are those who who have a professional calling to do that. That's you know, kind of what I've been called to do. It's not a job with me. It's a calling. But, but I want you to understand that we all have a responsibility to preach. Are you hearing me? Some of you just checked out. Replug. Plug that plug back in, okay? Look with me in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Interesting story. Read that whole chapter. As soon as they were freed, and we're talking about Peter and John here, who, who had been in prison because they were preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they were freed, they returned to the other believers, which probably would have been somewhere in the number of 120 to 150, maybe 200 people who were gathered. It says, and they told them what the leading priests and the elders had said. In other words, when Peter and John had been arrested, they were told, don't you go back and talk about Jesus anymore. You keep your mouth shut. Don't speak his name. But it said, when they heard this report, look at this, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And now, O oh Lord, they prayed, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Common people just like us we're praying this prayer. God, give us the ability to preach your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Don't miss 31. After they prayed, says the meeting place shook. I, I was sitting at the table yesterday with a few people praying at the men's prayer breakfast. I was thinking about this. What if that building had shook? Most of us would have run out. <laughs> Can you imagine God shaking the building 
that they were in. And it said they were, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice this last. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Not professional preachers. Just ordinary Joes and Janes. Notice what Peter tells us, me and you, that we must be ready to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He said, so don't be afraid and don't worry. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if you are asked about your hope, your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Always. He said, but you must do this. You must share your Jesus story. Share your opportunity to preach the good news. Be a witness. Notice this in a gentle and respectful way. Friends, I want you to hear this, hear it loud. There should never be an opportunity or reason for any of us to be rude or obnoxious. People are watching. People who need Jesus are listening to us. We proclaim we're Christians. Well, then let's act like it. So why aren't more of us praying? And why aren't more of us preaching? And why aren't more of us witnessing? Tony Evans says it this way. One reason a lot of us don't share Christ is that we've lost our excitement about Christ. When he is exciting to you, you can't keep him to yourself. When something dynamic occurs internally, you want to express it externally. The believers who received the Spirit on Pentecost became witnesses. They became preachers. The result of their witness and Peter's sermon on that unique day was the addition of 3,000 new believers to the body of Christ. He said, please note that these 3,000 people did not come because of an, an evangelistic program. They came because God's people were overwhelmed by His Spirit. They were excited about Jesus. The Spirit of God so filled the people of God that they could not keep their faith to themselves. And the result was an evangelistic masterpiece. A spiritual explosion. A great awakening. I want to see that. That would be a beautiful. Why did all of these people on the day of Pentecost come to know Christ? Why? Because of the faithfulness of God. Because of the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to do all that he promised. Remember what Dr. Perdue said, the same God who called you into a relationship with him will always be faithful in that relationship. That means he's going to be faithful to you. He's never going to ask you to do something that he's not going to help you do. He said you'll never discover a time when God isn't faithful. No one has known that better than the man that I'm about to talk about. A man by the name of George Mueller. You ever heard that name before? George Mueller? Anybody? I didn't think you would. That's why I picked him. George Mueller was just like you. Just like me. He became a Christian. He was a lost man that accepted Christ and his life was changed. There he is. Don't that kind of look like Wayne Martin? <laughs> Sorry. 
Y'all will get over that eventually. <laughs> George Mueller was, was a normal guy. He became a very committed, dedicated disciple of the Lord. He was a 19th century evangelist. He was a missionary. He was also an orphanage director. An orphanage director. He was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. He loved God with all his heart and he loved people. He loved children. So much so that he started five orphanages and over a hundred schools for kids. One morning, Mueller got up and he was informed that all the children that were there in the orphanage with him were, were dressed and ready to start their day, ready for school. But there was no food for them to be able to have breakfast. You see, Mueller's resources were always stretched to the limit because he lived by faith. Think about that. Even though there was no food, he told them to go into the cafeteria and be seated at their table and be ready to eat. The story tells us that Mueller then prayed. He prayed, thanking God for the food that those kids were about to eat. And then he waited. And it says within minutes there was a knock at the door. It was a local baker. The baker said, Mr. Mueller, last night I couldn't sleep and somehow I knew that you were going to need a lot of bread this morning. So I got up in the night and I baked three, I baked three batches of bread. And if you don't mind, I'll bring it in. So he did. Mueller continued to wait. In a moment, there was another knock at the door. And it was the milkman. And it just so happened that his milk cart broke down right in front of the orphanage. Imagine that. He had enough sense to know that before he could get the tire replaced, his wheel fixed, that the milk would spoil. So he knocked on the door and he said, Mr. Mueller, would you like to have some milk? George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 huge cans of milk, which turned out to be just enough to feed 300 children. So how in the world could something like that happen? It happened because of Mueller's fellowship with God that led him to understand more about the faithfulness of God. He clearly understand, understood that the closer you get to Jesus, the more that you'll begin to see the goodness and the faithfulness of God. The closer you get, the more you see what God is doing. So friend, I, I, I don't know if you need bread this morning or if you need milk or gas for your car I don't know what you need, but I know this. Even if it's salvation, our God can provide. If it's forgiveness, our God can provide. God is faithful. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, 
when we were utterly hopeless, Christ came at just the right time, and he died for sinners. You may think you need bread. You may think you need milk when you really need salvation. My question to you this morning is simply this. Will you let God be faithful to you? Will you? Will you let him provide for you what you need most, a, a good helping of grace and mercy? Will you let him save your soul? Come out from behind the facade that you live in and get real with the Lord.